Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Well, as you can see from our, the title of our slide, uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, Christmas. Um, we're going to look at uh, the Christmas story. We're actually going to do a Bible study on the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 40. And I've just entitled it Christmas Thoughts. Now, most of you know the, the, the Christmas story can be found in the Gospel of Matthew as well as the Gospel of Luke. But for the, just for the sake of time, uh, I'm going to focus tonight on uh, Luke. Now, it may seem obvious to you that being the last Wednesday before Christmas, well, of course, we would talk about uh, Christmas. But in fact, I've never done it before. In all the years that I've taught, I have never done a Bible study uh, on the Christmas story. So why are we doing it uh, tonight? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a video and I heard a guy say something, and he said that most people's knowledge of the Christmas story doesn't come from the Bible. That most people, their knowledge of the Christmas story comes from uh, other things, things like Christmas plays or Christmas cards or Christmas uh, carols even. And in fact, this is kind of a case in point. If I were to go out and maybe ask you tonight or or go to Winn-Dixie or Publix and ask a hundred people, how many wise men were there in the Christmas story? My guess is that 90% plus would say what? They'd say three. And, uh, uh, and because, after all, that's what you see in Christmas plays. That's what you see on Christmas cards. That's what we even sing about in Christmas carols. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar. But the fact is, the Bible never says that. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible that there were three wise men. I don't know where we got that. Uh, I'm assuming we infer it from the fact that they, there's three gifts. There's gold and frankincense and myrrh, but it never says that. It just says wise men, plural. So we don't know if there was three. We don't know if there was 300. So after hearing that, I thought, you know, I, I think I'll just take it as a personal challenge, and I'm going to go, and I'm just going to read the Christmas story. And I'm just going to try to set aside everything that I think I know about it, and I'm just going to focus on what the Bible says. Well, that, that turned into uh, tonight's uh, study, which, is, as you saw, I've just entitled Christmas Thoughts. So we're just going to walk through the Christmas story, and there's just a few things that, uh, that popped out at me. Uh, so just some random thoughts about the Christmas story. So let's start in verses 1 through 5. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with um, 
child. Now, the first thing that jumped out at me about the Christmas story is that it should remind us that he is a big God for little people. He's a big God for little people. Now, why do I say that? Well, the prophet Micah, who we know from some things that he said in his book, we know the prophet Micah would have lived from 750 to 700 B.C. Uh, And if you go study the book of Micah, you'll find a prophecy in there where Micah foretold way back then that the Messiah, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. Now, all the, all the Jews, or at least the, the, the Jews that studied the Bible, knew this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, when those aforementioned wise men, they came to Herod, and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Well, Herod was paranoid. He always thought somebody was trying to, to overthrow him. So he calls the chief priests and the scribes together, and he asks them a question. Where is the Christ to be born? And they immediately answered him because they knew. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea. And they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here is God, through his prophet Micah, foretelling uh, preordaining, predestining, whatever word you want to use, that some 700 plus years later, Jesus is going to be born in this little out of the way place called um, Bethlehem. But here's the problem Joseph and Mary, they don't live in Bethlehem. They live about 70 miles north of there as the crow flies in a little town called, uh, called Nazareth. And I'm sure there, you know, I've, Obviously, never been pregnant, but I've been around people that have. And 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 when my wife was pregnant, and my daughter-in-laws were pregnant, and others I know, they don't want to go nowhere, right? They want to settle in. They want to be around family. They they. I'm sure nobody's thinking about. Let's just get up and move. So they've got. In order to get them from uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, as I said, it's about 70 miles as a crow flies. It's about a 90-mile journey. They, there's two ways to get there. You can go through Samaria, but that's more dangerous. And I'm sure that Joseph would have probably went over and come down the Jordan River. He's got a wife that's uh, most likely in her third trimester. Uh, now, it's about a 90-mile journey. Now, a grown man can walk about 20 miles a day. So Joseph by himself could have made that uh, in about four and a half days. But with a wife in her third trimester... He probably made 10 or 12 miles a day at best. Uh, so you're talking about a, a 10-day journey or so to get down there. So the question becomes, well, how is God going to get them there? How does God get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, the, the simple answer, the obvious answer was, why don't he just send an angel to them? And tell him to go. He could have just sent an angel and he could have just said, hey, you need to get up. You need to go down to Bethlehem and have this child because we got to fulfill the prophecy, right? That would have been simple. And the reason I say that it's obvious is because he's already used an angel twice in their life to communicate with them. You remember in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel is sent from God to uh, uh, Nazareth to tell Mary that she has been 
chosen, that she has been selected, that her child is going to be the Savior of the world. So he's already communicated with her through an angel. By the way, he also did the same thing with Joseph in Matthew 1. You remember after Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant, he knows he hasn't been with her. It's not his child, and he's, he's trying to figure this out, and he's a good man, a just man, the Bible calls him. He loves her. He doesn't want to see her stoned for adultery or anything. He's trying to figure all this out. And then one night he has a dream, and an angel comes to him in the dream. And it says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, for the child inside of her is conceived from the Holy Spirit. So he's already used an angel once with Mary, once with Joseph. It would have been absolutely simple for God to supernaturally send an angel and tell them to go. But God does something completely different. In fact, instead of working supernaturally, God chooses to work providentially. And what he does is he puts it in the heart of the most powerful man in the world at that time, the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. A man so powerful that his own citizens worship him as a god. And, and so God puts it in his mind or in his heart to call for this census. And he does. Now, there's two interesting things about this census, and sometimes we don't think about this. You know, today, if, if Congress passes a law or, or, or the president signs some order, we, we almost hear about it immediately, don't we? We, you can turn on C-SPAN or you can turn on your news feeds and it's all right. But it didn't work that way back then. When, when somebody decided something, it had to be carried out to all the countries. And then once it got to the rulers of the country, it had to be distributed to the towns. Do you know that historians tell us that this census would have had to have been ordered some two to four years earlier? Before it ever makes its way. See, in our mind, we think, well, he just ordered a census, called up Nazareth and said, hey... But it didn't work that way. So it, isn't that amazing? God chooses some, let's say, two years earlier to put it on the emperor's heart to order a census. It takes two years for all that process to work. And finally, it just so happens in her third trimester, the order makes its way to Nazareth. That's an amazing God. By the way, historians also tell us that in the first and second century A.D., that the Roman Empire would have consisted of between 40 and 75 million people. So we're not talking about a few hundred people. We're talking about potentially millions of people having to get up, be displaced, and return to their ancestral homes, return to their villages and cities where their ancestors were born in order to be counted. So God is literally moving an empire. Now here's why I think this is important. You know, most of us, we go through our lives, and uh, I, I say we've got this myopic view. You know, most of us just, we're concerned about ourselves and our family and our jobs and our schools and our communities and our churches. But every once in a while, if you're like me, you step back and you realize how small you really are. That we live in a, in a world, last count, around seven and a half billion people. That I am one of seven and a half billion. Uh, scientists have a word for that. It's called you are statistically insignificant. You, you don't even, you're not even a one out of seven and a half billion. You're not even a blip on the radar. 
And so here I am, you know, and sometimes I think, wow, I'm just, you know, we're just so small, man. One out of seven and a half billion. And I'm not, nobody, you know, other than you guys, nobody cares what I got to say. I'm not powerful. I'm not wealthy. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, influencing anybody. And I mean, nobody really cares. So as, as, as human beings, sometimes we can feel insignificant. And by the way, to make matters worse as Christians, it almost seems like the whole world is against you now. The things that you think are important, that you think are valuable, nobody cares about. The political movements, the, the social movements, the economic movements that are going on, they are diametrically opposed to your beliefs and your values. So that just makes us even feel smaller. You see, the Christmas story, though, reminds us that he's a big God for insignificant people. That this God moved an empire for one little couple in one little country in one little town that was, wasn't even, not, that town is so, wasn't even respected by its own people. Remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But God moved an empire, millions of people on the move for one little couple. That's the kind of God that we serve. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills, wherever he wants to. Listen, I want you to understand tonight at this Christmas season that out there, every politician, every captain of industry, every social justice warrior is being moved by the hand of God, not for their sake, but for yours. You see, God has a plan for his people. God has a plan and a purpose for you. As insignificant as you sometimes feel, he knows your name. And he's got a plan. And he will move an empire for you. He's a big God for little people. Let's read verses 6 and 7. In fact, we have to read verses 6 and 7 because it brings up a really interesting point. It says, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger. Now, that word literally means a feed trough. And for those of you that have been around a farm or raised animals, you all know what a feed trough is, right? She lays him in a feed trough. Now, the question is, why in the world is she laying the, the Savior of the world, the King of Kings? Why is she laying him in a feed trough? Well, it tells us, doesn't it? Because there's no room for them in the end. There's, there's no place for them to stay. Now, listen. The Christmas story here reminds us, reminds me, that we all have a road to walk. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, consider this. When you think of kings, if I were to just say, what comes to your mind when you think of kings? You you might think of the British royalty, and you might think of palaces and crowns and thrones and lavish lifestyles. You don't think of feed troughs, right? I, I doubt feed troughs comes into anybody's mind. Yet here is Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, and he comes into this world literally right alongside the poorest of the poor. Now, here's my question. Don't you think that a God who would move an empire, don't you think that God could have made sure that there was at least one room in that town for them to stay? 
a God that can put millions of people on the move, a God that can, 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 can turn the king's heart like water, a, a God that is so in control that he can have that man issue a census two years before it ever is needed. That kind of God, don't you think he could have made sure there was one room? See, the answer to that is, well, of course he could. Of course he could have. But see, we don't talk about could-haves. You see, Jesus could have been born rich and powerful. Jesus could have turned those stones into bread. Jesus could have come down off the cross and saved himself. See, the question is not what God could have done. The question is what God wanted to do. You can sit here and say could-haves all day long. That's not the question. The question is what God wanted to happen. See, the fact is we know that Jesus was born into those circumstances because that was God's will and plan for his life. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, Jesus didn't come to be rich and powerful. He didn't come to be this intimidating figure. He came to be someone who could say, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly in heart. See, that was, that was the plan from day one. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he went through all of that. He knows who we are. John Piper said this, The no vacancy signs over all the motels in Bethlehem were for you. It's for your benefit. You see, Jesus, when he came into this world, and all the miraculous things, the prophecies and all that, but when he came into this world, he had a road that he had to walk. And that road starts with a no vacancy sign in Bethlehem and it ends on a cross in Jerusalem. Mary has a road to walk. Her, her, her road started with an angel, Gabriel, bringing her this, the most incredible news anybody has ever heard. And it ends with a sword piercing her own heart. See, the fact is, you and I have our own road to walk. And what you and I need to remember tonight is just because there's no room at the end doesn't mean God's forgot about you. Just because there's no room at the end in your life doesn't mean that God's hand is shortened. It just means that's your road to walk. See, into every life is going to come difficulties. In every life, things aren't going to work out. In every life, there's going to be pain and there's going to be suffering. In every life doesn't mean God's not right there. That's just your road to walk. But He is a sovereign God. It's not what He could have done. It's what He willed to do in Jesus' life, in Mary's life, and in ours. And remember, on this road... It's not your prosperity he's worried about. It's not your comfort he's worried about. It's your holiness. It's your holiness. Let's read verses 8 through 11. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
I don't want you to miss, there, there is some of the deepest theology in the entire Bible right there. And we just go right by it. Did you hear what he said? An angel of the Lord God is being sent to you. The glory of the Lord God is shining all around you. By the way, go to Bethlehem and you'll find the Lord God lying in a manger. Do you see that? The Lord sends the angel, the glory of the Lord, and you will go find Christ. Who? The Lord. You see, the Christmas story reminds us that Jesus isn't just a man. That Jesus isn't uh, uh, some kind of created archangel. That he's not just a prophet. That he's, that he's not any. He is God with us. I mean, right here in the Christmas story, right here at the announcement of his birth, we see the deity of Jesus Christ which is going to be taught all throughout the New Testament. We know He does what only God can do, doesn't He? He creates all things according to Scripture. He forgives sins. He raises the dead. He controls nature, heals diseases, walks on water. The list goes on and on. And throughout the New Testament, it'll say it over and over and over again in a lot of different ways. For example, in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 20, when, when, when Thomas takes his finger and puts it in the, 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 the scars in Jesus' hand, Thomas looks at him and says, My Lord and my God. Paul, writing to Titus, says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells. And Hebrews 1.8, by the way, which is quoting Psalms 45.6, where God is saying to his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Or Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, which is the other version of the Christmas story. Matthew says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is an interesting thing. God with us. What does that mean? You see, God, it's not like God's been absent, right? Uh, he's been involved. He, he's created the earth. He, he was there uh, with Noah. He was there with, with Moses and, and, and doing all the, the plagues and all that. He parted the Red Sea. They saw him appear as thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. He, he hovered over the tabernacle, a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He, he, he filled the temple with his presence. He spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. It's not like he's been absent. So what does Matthew mean when he says God is now with us? Well, certainly Matthew's saying something new has happened. Something unique has happened. There's something about God coming in, in that child that's never been done before. And that's exactly what it is. You see, God, for the first time, steps into this world in human form. He comes to us in a way that, that He's never come to us before. You know, here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you, I think this way sometimes. You know, Jesus just could have appeared 
at 30 years old. He could have just appeared on the scene and started teaching. The man of mystery. And everybody would have been wondering, where did he come from? This man that does all these miracles. He could have done all the same stuff. But he comes through a birth canal. God comes through a birth canal just like every single one of us did. And he experiences a death just like every one of us will. And everything in between, the hunger and, the, and, and all of that stuff. See, God became like us. I live in a world today, I don't know about you, but every time I turn on the news, it seems like there's one more thing to worry about. There's one more thing to, to darken the future, not just for me as much as for my children and for my grandchildren. And I ask myself sometimes, what, what is going to enable me and my children and my grandchildren to live a life of fearlessness? A life where you don't live every day worried that the stock market's going to crash or worried that this is going to happen or that's going to happen or you're going to get sick or you're going to die. Or how, do you, how does a Christian live a life without fear? Listen to what the angel said. Don't be afraid. Why? Because this day is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, we don't, he's not just a man. Our Savior isn't just a man, a created being. He is God. God has come to, to experience life like we do. God has died on a cross for us, given his life for our sins. Your Savior is God. And what should that mean? Listen to how Paul says it. If God is for me, who can be against me? See, that should change everything this Christmas season. The Christmas story also reminds us that some things don't uh, change. Um, new parents. Everybody here has probably been new parents at one time or another. And you, you bring your baby into church and... What's the first thing people do? You know, they, oh, you know, they want to come up and touch your baby. And, you know, you're like, ah, get your filthy hands away from me. You know, it's, especially since COVID, it seems like people are more weirded out, right, about you touching their baby. But some things don't change. The exact same thing happened to Jesus. The very first time they take him to the temple, Jesus is approached by two people. One man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. Now, this is really odd when you think about it. When I, I read this part of the story over and over again. Here, here are two people, and you've never heard of them before, and you'll never hear of them again. They just appear in this story, and you, they're done. But God didn't do anything by accident. There's the one thing I believe with all my heart, that if it's in that Bible, it's there for a reason. There's something that God wants us to see. There's something about these two people that are important. So let's take a look at them. First, we'll look at Simeon, verses 22 to 32. It says, Now when the days of our purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed. That's 40 days, by the way. So she had 40 days to wait. So after 40 days, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, uh, Israel. Let me tell you, the, the story of Simeon, the mention of Simeon in the Christmas story reminds me that he's coming again. He's coming again. Now, why does it remind me? Well, when we celebrate Christmas, we are, of course, celebrating the first coming of our king. The birth of our king. But you can't think about his first coming without thinking, okay, he's coming again. He told us he would, by the way, in John chapter 14. He says, in my father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also Now, here in Simeon, we are given an incredible example of a man who is waiting for the Messiah. Just like we are waiting for him to come back, he is waiting. Now, of course, he's waiting for the birth of the king. We're waiting for the return of the king. But the waiting and the way that we wait is no different. We should look at Simeon and say, what did he do while he waited? What, what was it that allowed him to wait so that, I mean, we want to be like Simeon when it comes to that. So three things I notice about Simeon. The first thing is that Simeon believed the word of God. He believed in his promises. He believed that God could not lie. He said in verse 29, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You see, God is faithful to his promises. And and Simeon believed that what God had said he would do. We are to be the same. While he waited, the Bible describes him as just and devout. While we wait, we gather together. While we wait, we try to walk in a way that's worthy of our calling. While we wait, we're not perfect, but we are devoted. Remember I said this in the Sermon on the Mount? You're not going to be perfect, but you are committed to this. You are committed to the deepest parts of who you are. This, I'm committed to this life. That's what it means to be devout. That's what it means to be devoted. And Simeon was. Now, I want to give you one more thing. And I want to tell you before I do that this part is important. I want you to remember when you, when you hear the story of Simeon, technically, even though we've started the New Testament, we're really still in the Old Testament. John the Baptist has only been born three months ago, so he's still got a ways to go. Jesus has got another 30 years before he'll begin his ministry. We're technically in the Old Testament. There's been no cross. There's been no resurrection. There's been uh, no Pentecost, any of those kind of things. So here's my question. What was it that allowed this Old Testament saint to stand firm? What was it that allowed him to keep believing, to keep trusting in the promises of God? What was it that allowed him to remain righteous and devout while he waited for the coming of the Messiah? The answer is, it's the exact same thing that allows us to do those things. 
Did you not see it when we read it? And the man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by who? The Holy Spirit, that he would not see death. So he came to the, uh, uh, into the temple. How? He was led by the Spirit. Folks, listen to me. You can go back in the Old Testament as far, and if you find a man or a woman faithful to God, I'm going to show you the Holy Spirit standing right there with them. It's no different for us today. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1.13. In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, and you believed in him, in that moment you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So like Simeon, we wait. And while we wait, we study his word, and we trust his word, and we believe his word, and we remain devoted to his cause. We remain devoted to his way. And we do our best to walk worthy of this calling. But let me tell you, if you, what's going to keep you devoted and what's going to keep you walking and what's going to keep you believing is the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. The same as for Simeon will be for us. So just like Simeon, we wait. While we wait, we trust in his promises. We trust in the promises of a God that cannot lie. And we remain faithful through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not quite done with Simeon. It says this, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon decides he's going to prophesy. And he does. It says, And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, Now, this is interesting. It's just a side note. Uh, I don't know what happens to Joseph. That's going to be the, one of the first things I want to find out one day is that, but, you know, Joseph evidently dies before Jesus begins his ministry. Um, even here, he turns and he talks to Mary. doesn't talk to Joseph. Joseph will not be around to see these things. It says, He said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He says three things about Jesus. And in this, these three things, he's reminding us right at the very beginning that salvation is going to be found in him and him alone. That's it. This is all about the exclusivity of Jesus you see, right off the bat, Simeon prophesies that Jesus is going to be a divider. In fact, he will be the great divider. He is going to be the crossroads that every single person that comes in contact with him is going to have to make a choice for him or against him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral. You're going to be for him or you're going to be uh, against him. Listen to what he says, three things. He first says this, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. You see, some are going to believe in him, and those will be raised. They will be elevated, but some will not, and those will fall. It's, it's the same thing that Isaiah said in Isaiah 28 that, that uh, Paul quotes in Romans 9. He says, as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There is a rock called Jesus, and you either fall on that rock for mercy or that rock will fall on you and crush you. There is no middle ground. 
the, the people that are prideful, those who are strong in their own eyes, who rely on their own merit, they're going to come crashing down. But for those who will recognize that they are a spiritual beggar, that they bring nothing to the table and they will fall on this rock and cry for mercy, they will be raised up to eternal life. The second thing he says about Jesus, he is a sign which will be spoken against. Now, we know in the Gospels that he was accused, wasn't he? He was, he was mocked, he was scorned, he was finally condemned. And even at the end, he gave, he gave all kind of signs, right? All kind of signs and wonders and all kind of things. And at the end, he gave the greatest sign of all. Matthew chapter 12. They said, show us a sign. And he said this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He, he was raised from the dead, validating. I, I was talking to somebody the other night, and I said, it all comes to the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, it's all a lie. But if the resurrection is true, then it's all true. It all comes down to that one event. Did it happen? Do you believe it? That's the sign. He was raised from the dead to validate who he was. And yet today, nobody uses Buddha as a cuss word. Nobody uses Muhammad as a cuss word or, or Moses as a cuss word. Only the precious name of Jesus. Still to this day, they're still speaking against him. How is it they, they take a sign of Christianity, the fish, and they mock, turn it into a mockery as a bumper sticker on the back of the window. They're still speaking against him today. Every other religion they're fine with. But not Christianity, not Jesus, because he's a divider. Now listen, you can water him down and make him into your buddy and, and make him all, and, and they'll, they're okay with that. But once you say, I am the way and the truth and the life, no man comes unto the Father. They will, that's it. They cannot put up with that. They're not looking for a Savior who says he's the only way. And they continue to speak against him today. Finally, Simeon says this, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Listen, whether you accept or reject this man reveals at the end of the day who you really are down deep. It tells everything. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. Do you know him? That's it. That's what's going to matter at the end. Do you know this man? Listen, tonight, as we're in this room and we leave this room, you cannot be neutral. That's an impossibility. There's no fence to, that you can sit on. You are either for him or you're against him. Jesus said, you either gather with me or you scatter. It's one or the other. There is no neutrality I had the, the uh, I was thinking about this this week. I had the, the, the privilege this year, I, I told many of you, to, to go and pray in front of the Senate. Or, you know, they, they let people come and pray as they open up the, the Senate. And somebody asked me to come, and I went. And I was, I was happy to do that. And I was glad that I could get up there in front of the Senate and finish my prayer. And I said, in the name of Jesus. 
Now, should we be happy that we live in a country where you can pray in front of the Senate? Sure. Should we be happy that, that we live in a country where on our money it says, in God we trust? Sure. But you see, that same Senate, the next day that I leave, they may have a Muslim come in. Or they may have a Jewish man or a Buddhist come in. Folks, listen to me. God's not in, Jesus is not interested in being one of many. He is the only one. That's what, that's what Simeon is saying. He, he is the divider. He is the truth. Everybody else is false. You are either choosing him or you're choosing one of the others. But he said, as he told um, Peter, unless I wash you, unless I have a relationship with you, it, unless I cleanse you, you have no part in me. No part in me. I close with this, Luke 2, 36 to 38. Now, there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Now, I want to stop real quick and point something out. It is, the Greek is very difficult right there. In fact, uh, that's the New King James. Are they saying that she's 84 or are they saying she's been a widow for 84 years? It's tough because the Greek is tough. You can actually read it either way. So you'll find some translations that says she's 84 years old. You'll find some translations that say uh, that she had been a widow for 84 years. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But it says she did not depart from the temple, but she served God with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. And that's it. That's Anna. Now, here's what we know about Anna. She'd only been married seven years when her husband died. And she remains a widow for the rest of her life. So she's either 84 or let's say she got married at 15. She stays married for seven years. He dies at 22 and she stays, she's been a widow for 84 years. That'd make her about 106. So she's 84, 106, one of those ages. The point is the same, right? Doesn't really matter how old she was. The point is, she has spent the best years of her life in service to God. She spent the vast majority of her life without a husband, ministering before the Lord in the temple. Now, here's the thing. The Christmas story reminds me what a life well lived really looks like. You see, the world would look at Anna and they'd say, man, what a wasted life. What a wasted life. They would look at Anna and they'd, they'd see all the things she missed, all the places she didn't go, all the experiences that she didn't get to have. And they'd say, what a wasted life. Let me tell you, folks, that was 2,000 years ago. Where I can guarantee you she didn't regret a minute of it. She hadn't regretted a minute of it. See, we live in a culture, let's be honest, and amongst a people that could care less about making an eternal difference. Our, 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 the vast majority of people around us and in this culture could care less whether or not they ever make an eternal difference. They just want a nice life. 
John Piper back in, I believe it was 2000, preached a, a very famous sermon called Don't Waste Your Life. And he described the world like this. They just want a good job with a good wife, a couple of good kids, a nice car, long weekends, a few good friends, a fun retirement, a quick and easy death, and no hell. That is basically what people aspire to right there. No interest at all in eternity. No interest at all in serving God. No interest at all in making an eternal difference. Don't buy that lie. Don't buy that lie. Don't be that person. Be an Anna. Now, I'm not standing here telling you today that you got to sell everything you got and move to another country. I'm not saying any of those things. It's not about that. You don't have to, to know a lot of things to make an eternal difference. You don't. You really only got to know one thing, and that is that right there. That in the city of David, of Bethlehem, a child has been born who is Christ, the Lord, a Savior. You know that. Be set on fire by that. And you'll make an eternal difference in your family. You'll make an eternal difference in your community. You'll make an eternal difference in everybody that you come in contact with. Do you know him? Do you know him? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus, for this season. We thank you for the coming into this world, becoming like us in, in so many ways, yet you are all God. It's, a, it's an incredible thing for us to try to wrap our minds around, but I just thank you for it, God. I, I know because it was your plan, it was good and right and perfect, and I give you thanks and I give you glory for that. I pray as a people that as we come uh, to this weekend and we come to, the, to Christmas, God, that we uh, will enjoy our families, we'll enjoy those around us, God, but we will ever keep in our mind that it's not about these temporary trinkets, but it's about making an eternal difference. And you enabled us to do that by coming to this earth 2,000 years ago. You enabled us us, these insignificant people, one of seven and a half billion, to make an eternal difference. What an honor and what a privilege. God, help us not to waste our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I wanted to real quickly give you a, 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 a kind of a, a schedule over the next few weeks. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be preparing a, a short series uh, in Ephesians, and so next week, next Wednesday, we'll have a guest speaker, and then the following Wednesday, we'll have another guest speaker, and then I'll come back on January the 10th, and we're going to start a probably uh, six to eight week study in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. So we're just going to spend about six weeks in those um, verses. So be praying about that, that, uh, uh, that that'll, go, <laughs> that'll go well. And so I'm just going to take a couple of weeks and start preparing uh, to get that all going. So please, if you can, if you're in town, please support our guest speakers. Um, you know, I know we got family and people are traveling and all that, but uh, we got, you know, we, I mentioned to you before, we want to try to bring people in, give other people chances to speak and grow and mature and, uh, and their talents. And, you, you know, so we want to give people opportunities. And so when we do, we want to uh, support them as well. So Merry Christmas. If I don't see you Sunday, I hope you all have a great one. Y'all are dismissed.
Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.